if you have your Bible, we're looking at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is indeed the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Matt, for reading the scripture this morning. We're having a little bit of a role reversal, I guess. Sometimes I read the scripture for Matt. My name is Jeff Moger, and uh, I'm an elder here at the barn, and uh, I have opportunity from time to time to to preach the word, and this morning we have opportunity together to open the scriptures. We are in the middle of a sermon series about kingdom practices. What are the practices that followers of Jesus have found helpful in strengthening their relationship with him, with the Lord, and beneficial in growing in how to follow him? What are the things that Christians can do to build their faith? Of course, being a follower of Jesus is not something that we do. It is something that we are, since Jesus has already done the work, all the work. But these are timeless kingdom practices that have pragmatic application for today. So let's take a look at one. Please pray with me. Lord, here we stand. Open each of our hearts and our minds to your word, to your spirit, to you this morning. Amen. Much of Matthew 22 is a record of questions that Jesus was asked. It's important to put these questions into the time context. What was going on in Jesus' life when he was asked these questions? In Matthew 21, we saw Jesus triumphantly entering Jerusalem on, on, on Palm Sunday. We saw him clearing out the temple, his father's house. We saw him healing the blind and the lame. We saw him teaching in parables, and we saw him battling with the Pharisees. It's now a few days after Palm Sunday. It's been a very busy couple of days. The events of Matthew 22 are taking place in the last few days of Jesus' life on earth. He is headed to the cross at the end of the week, and he knows it. The questions we are looking at today take place as Jesus is preparing for the ultimate sacrifice. The words of Jesus here are some of the last recorded conversations, his last thoughts before his arrest, trial, execution, and resurrection. Matthew 22 records three questions that the Pharisees and the Sadducees ask of him. I am a high school history teacher. And I love it when my students ask me questions. 
It tells me that they're thinking about the material we're looking at and may, they may be applying previous learning to try to understand it better. Or they might also be applying what we're studying now to something that's happening in the present day. It's great when my students ask me questions. I love it. It's not the same, however, when my principal, my boss, asks me questions. You did what? Why did you do that? These are more uncomfortable conversations. I don't like those questions. Jesus was also asked a lot of questions. According to one study of scripture, Jesus answered 113 different questions recorded in the, uh, uh, in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, 52 of those questions were his own. Very efficient to ask and answer your own questions. 61 questions were asked by other people, 25 of the 61 by the disciples. There are two questions he chose not to answer, one from Pilate and one while he was on the cross. I'm sure that Jesus was asked many other questions during his life that are not recorded for us. Sometimes I wonder what the other questions were about. The scripture records suggest that Jesus was constantly asked questions or was asking his own. He also seemed to have enjoyed the conversations that followed these questions. It can be fun and interesting to study these encounters as the Gospels record them. The three questions Jesus was asked in chapter 22 are not from students asking, seeking understanding or comprehension. These questions were asked by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These two competing groups were the leading Jewish scholars and experts of the day. They are not questions of curiosity or even of honest inquiry. They are simply attempts to trip him up. They are trying to embarrass him in public to get that gotcha moment to decrease his popularity. They view Jesus as a rival, an opponent, or perhaps even something worse. We're told in verse 15 of chapter 22 that the Pharisees asked their first question about taxes with the hope that they could, quote, entangle him in his words, unquote. Paying Roman taxes, of course, was a hot topic for debate that people got pretty fired up about. It was true then, and we still get fired up about taxes. The second question came from the Sadducees, seeking to trip him up with a question about the topic of resurrection. Nothing controversial there. Jesus handles both of these questions decisively, cleverly, and clearly. We're then told that the Pharisees gathered together, and then they tried one more question. Verse 34, 35 tells us once again they went to test him. This time the question is a little different. This time the question is more about judgment than not just about knowledge. And I quote, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? The lawyer asks of Jesus. They assumed, they assumed that Jesus knew the commandments in scripture, but did he know the greatest commandment? He did. Jesus replied with the correct answer from a Pharisee's point of view. I wonder if they expected him to say something outrageous. He didn't. He gave the answer which demonstrated his continuity with the Jewish tradition. He quoted the Shema, one of the most essential prayers in Judaism, then and still today. This Jewish prayer is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses is leading the people of Israel 
as they prepared to enter the promised land. He's teaching them about what to remember, what to do as they enter the promised land. Deuteronomy 6.4 goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Sounds familiar. The command is simple and straightforward. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. How does one command love? You shall. I don't have the power to command the love of my wife or of my children. Of course, God has authority to command not only our obedience and dedication, but also our affection. You shall love God fully. You shall love God completely. You shall love God, love God with all your, with your whole being. The biblical idea of heart is not exactly the same as we conceive it today. In, the, in Old Testament, New Testament usage, the heart refers to both of our modern ideas of the will and the mind. Today, we associate it more with emotions, but that is not how the Bible uses it or how Jesus uses it. This is necessary to understand because God is not commanding his people to an emotional faith, but to an obedient faith, an obedient faith that incorporates emotions. Emotions are one part of our faith, but the reference here is deeper to more than just emotions alone. The will and the mind are about knowing God's purposes and plans and then deciding to follow them. Jesus uses this language in Matthew 22 when he says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Mark chapter 12 records the same encounter, but with the words heart, soul, mind, and strength. The essence is the same in all three passages, in Matthew, in Mark, and in Deuteronomy. To be a follower of God, to be a follower of Jesus, is to be all in. To love him in the good times and the bad times. To love him when we understand his actions and when we don't. It is not a Sunday-only faith. It is not a family-only faith. We are to love the Lord with all our heart while at church while at home, at work, at school, with friends, on vacation, at the DMV, at Yankee Stadium, everywhere. The heart is not a part of who we are as humans, but the center of who we are as humans. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. I repeat, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Pastor and author Tim Keller says this about Proverbs 4.23, and I quote, In the Bible, the heart is not primarily the seat of the emotions in contrast to the head as the seat of reason. Rather, the heart is the seat of your deepest trusts, commitments, and loves from which everything flows. What the heart most loves and trusts, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable." Unquote. I think he's saying that to love the Lord with all your heart is reasonable, 
desirable and doable. There is a connection between loving and doing, between love and action. Everything I, can, I do can come out of my love for the Father. The Father's love causes me to do. Love leads to action. The Shema makes this connection as well. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. Once again, it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Love with all your heart. But then it continues with action. Immediately following that is verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Teach, talk, walk, bind, write. They're all active verbs. These are practical suggestions from Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for how to live out this command, as well as how to pass it along to those we interact with. We are encouraged to know scripture by heart, to teach it to those we care about, to talk about the Lord as part of our daily routine while waking up and then again when going to sleep, to remind ourselves and others of the words of the Lord and how they apply to our lives. The bar is set pretty high. In fact, it's very high. So, how can I love with all my heart? How does one live out this kingdom practice, this first and greatest commandment, as Jesus called it? Loving God with all my heart is not just an emotion. It is a practice, an action. We love many things in life. We love family. We love friends. I love potato chips. My love for family and friends is not the same as my love for potato chips. All loves are not of equal degree. One thing I love that I know Pastor Matt also loves is basketball. How do I love basketball? With action. I play it. Well, I used to. I practice it. I watch it. I coach it. I analyze it. I study it. I talk about it. And then I talk about it some more. And then I talk about it some more. I love it. Even the NBA. My love for basketball leads me to action. Now, basketball is just a game, a distraction, simple entertainment. Can this love of an earthly thing possibly help me to understand how to love the eternal Lord with all my heart? Maybe it can. Love at its most simple level is a relationship. Loving God is a relationship, not only with the creator of the universe, but also with my personal savior. I can spend time with the Lord at home in the morning enjoying his word. I can spend time with the Lord in nature in the afternoon enjoying his creation. In church on Sundays enjoying his fellowship. In prayer anytime enjoying his intimacy and his care. I can study his word to know more about him. I can worship him to enjoy his presence more deeply.
Every relationship takes time and effort to build and strengthen and grow. It's not something that happens quickly, overnight, in a single moment. It takes time. Relationships are also two-way streets. We take action, and the Lord will respond in kind. Joshua, Joshua, an Old Testament figure who followed Moses as the leader of the nation of Israel after the exodus from Egypt, summed up Israel's relationship with the Lord in chapter 24 of his book. He challenged the leaders of Israel to make a choice, a decision of what God they would love and serve. He told them he had already made his choice. Joshua chapter 24 verse 15 says, quote, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. To love the Lord with all your heart is to serve and honor him. To love the Lord with all your heart is a decision of the will and the mind that complements our emotions. Joshua made that choice. So did the Old Testament figure of David. Twice in scripture, David is called, quote, a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. First in Samuel in chapter, uh, first by Samuel, chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, and then again by Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 13. David loved God with all his heart. From a young age when he fought Goliath to his adult life as a king, David loved and honored the Lord. We know this is true. Scripture says so. But David was also far from perfect, very far. His list of issues included not only lying, disobedience, and failure as a father, but also adultery and then murder to cover it up. David was not perfect, and neither are we. What we accomplish for the Lord, or what we seek to honor the Lord with, begins with Jesus. We love because he first loved us. We serve because he taught us and showed us how to serve. David worshiped the Lord with psalms that he wrote and with music and dance. David served the Lord in battle and as a king of Israel. David showed mercy and was given mercy by others. David honored the Lord's anointed and was in turn honored. His soul thirsted for the things of God. He was, quote, a man after God's own heart. In Psalm 63, the first nine verses, David wrote this. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so will I bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Again, let's look at the verbs David uses. Seeks you, thirsts for you, 
faints for you, beholds you, praises you, blesses you, remembers you, meditates on you, clings to you. These are words of love. These words reveal to us David's heart. They are emotional words, but they demonstrate the will and the mind as well. They show us what it means to be a man after the heart of God. David loved the Lord with all his heart. The New Testament states multiple times that Jesus loved the Father and showed it by following his commands and doing the will of the Father. There is a relationship between loving someone and obedience and doing what they want you to do. Several times in the life of Jesus, the voice of the Father is heard saying, quote, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus was loved by the Father and loved others in response. So can we. What about the heart of Jesus? We saw how David was a man after the heart of God. What does Jesus say about his own heart? In Matthew 11, Jesus tells us about his heart. Jesus is teaching about his relationship with the Father when he gives an invitation to his followers. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Perhaps these are simple, uh, familiar words for you. But that phrase, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. We learn here that the heart of Jesus is gentle and lowly. The word translated as gentle is used elsewhere in scripture to mean meek and humble. Lowly in heart also means humble. But in the sense of a person being a commoner, not one of high or aristocratic society. This carpenter's son has a heart that is warm to all. This reinforces his invitation to all in verse 28. Come to me. The heart of Jesus holds a permanent invitation to all who struggle with the burdens of life. To come and find rest for your soul. Not only a physical rest, but an eternal rest where the love of the Father is available and all that is commanded in return is to love with all our hearts. Wherever you are at this morning in your relationship with Jesus, this invitation is there to be grasped. It is still available. It is on the table offered to each of us. Love the Lord with all your heart is the first commandment and the first step to a life of resting in the gentle heart of God. This kingdom practice, this commandment is called the greatest commandment. It is a practice that defines us as being in relationship with God and begins the process of growing closer to him. It is an act of our will and mind, but also our emotions. Let us love the Lord our God with all our heart. We live in a time of great confusion, of pandemic pandemonium. Take a step back from the chaos and let your love of the Father be at the center of your heart today. Amen.
Let's pray. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Help us this day, O Lord, to love you in a way that brings honor and glory to you and rest to our souls. Help us to love you with all our hearts. Amen.